Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about a literary agent called Sam Foster who uses his gift of the gab and fairly flexible relation with the truth to secure various book deals. One day, he tries to get a book deal from a new age self-help guru called Dr. Singer. However, the doctor susses Sam's game instantly, and after agreeing to the deal, delivers a book which is only five pages long. That night, a Bodhi tree magically appears in Sam's backyard. Dr. Singer goes to Sam's house, and they discover that for every word that Sam says, a leaf will fall off the tree. When the tree runs out of leaves, the tree will perish, as will Sam. In time, he finds that even written words count towards his limit. Plus, anything that happens to the tree will also affect Sam. <laughs> when Sam tries to cut it down with an axe, an axe wound appears in him. When Squirrels climb the tree, it tickles him. When Nagana tries to poison it with DDT, Sam gets high on the fumes. And when Nagana tries to water the tree, Sam starts to sweat profusely. With Sam forced to pick and choose his words, communicating with others becomes difficult and rife with misunderstandings. These misunderstandings cost him two book deals, his job, and his marriage to his lovely wife, Danny Moran. He walks out on him when he thinks Sam's son's silence is due to him not loving him anymore. When Sam tries to explain the tree to Danny, he doesn't believe him. Only Sam's assistant, Katie Rogers, realizes that he is telling the truth. Is what I would be saying. This is a adaptation of the classic 2012 film, A Thousand Words which currently has a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That's brutal. This is, in fact, just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me is a man who will use nine words when one will do verbose blowhard, Sam Foster. I'm not sure about the internal logic of this movie, by the way. Sweating is not the equivalent of being watered, is it? (laughs) Yeah, there's water on the tree, there's water on you. Shouldn't it be like when someone waters the tree, he feels full or something? Yeah. That, like suggest to me that the screenwriter was running out of ideas i don't want to be you know like childish and juvenile here but what if, well, if like, you wank on a tree do you <laughs> get does it get spunk on his leg that's literally what i was about to say <laughs> <laughs> you know me so well <laughs> what happens that's the big question does you start like you just can't stop ejaculating i assume that you haven't seen the movie right no so i mean they might explore this question that's probably the climax of the film sure the literally the climax of the film oh you uh, this week, we are covering a spectrum of cinematic taste so all-encompassing, this episode is probably the only thing that can heal our divided nation. Send it to every Brexiteer and Ramona you know, and maybe we can all learn how to get along, now that it's far, far too late. Danny will be giving us the lowdown on Ben Wheatley's follow-up to High Rise, the 70s-set gunfest Free Fire, and also yet another 80s-inspired independent horror film, The Void. I, meanwhile, will be reviewing The Lost City of Zed, certainly the most colonially problematic film to come out since 
well, since Kong Skull Island two weeks ago. Finally, Danny and I will report back on our lads night in yesterday as we drank beer, ate pasta, and watched a documentary about avant-garde Russian revolutionary art. Also, we will be discussing the cultural event of the century, the sequel to Love Actually, aired for Red Nose Day. We report on the uproarious adventures of two budding Hollywood screenwriters trying to get their dick joke film read by major producers, and we offer a sneak preview of Aaron Sorkin's script for an upcoming superhero movie. All that should leave just enough time for me to announce my new film, which makes the case for a progressive British patriotism. Just what's needed in these dark times. For England, Harry, St. George, and also Karl Marx is the story of Barry, a normal average English bloke who loves FIFA and sausage rolls and Luton Airport. His ringtone is Elgar's Nimrod, and he salutes a picture of Pippa Middleton's bum every day. But after the Conservative government passes a tax hike on the self-employed, he comes to understand the true meaning of patriotism, joining a revolutionary vanguard dedicated to establishing a dictatorship of the proletariat. And every Thursday, over a couple of pints of Stella and a few pepper armies, the lads Barry, Keith, (laughs) Gaza and Rodney plot the violent overthrow of capitalism. Back of the net, lads. Sorry, comrades. (laughs) That's where I was going with that. I fluffed the fluffed the landing there. Films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, cool films, new films, some John Woo films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, films short hours long, we've got films up to your gills with films, 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 movies. Are you feeling comfortable? Film chat has begun. Stella Ramsen got in touch. She says, Dear Film Chat, can you recommend any good UK animation films? A French friend is looking for unusual suggestions. She mentioned Watership Down, Animal Farm, When the Wind Blows, and The Plague Dogs. I thought of Wallace and Gromit's stuff and Charlotte's Web. Anything to add? I think she's looking for worldwide suggestions, but just asked me thinking I'd able to help out on the UK list. But I didn't watch lots of animation and couldn't help! So any suggestions for really good and unusual animated films, please. But mainly from the UK, Poss. Lots of love! Doesn't Stella work in the animation industry? Yeah, I mean... Come on. You gotta know on the uh, lack of... Gotta know your stuff. I can't be asked to finish that pig Latin. <laughs> whatever, whatever fits in there. I'm, I, do you think this is one of those asking for a friend type things where it's actually just like she's, you know, <laughs> a friend of mine was asking how to export <laughs> this video to YouTube. Keep uh, getting a black bar around it. Um, UK animation films. Well, I mean, my go-to one is Ardman, but she already mentioned those. Yeah. Well, she mentioned Wallace and Gromit, but maybe she's not familiar with the full you know, spectrum of Ardman options. Can you be grow up in this country and not be aware of Chicken Run? And Well, maybe she just didn't recommend them. You have to say, I've got to say that her, her French friend has got to watch Shaun of the Sheep. There's no language barrier. And it's, it's a classic. It's true. It's true. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So that would be perfect. You don't need to worry about subtitles obscuring the animation. I um, couldn't really think of one off the top of my head. So I went straight to Wikipedia. The UK animation, like the one she mentioned... Oddman aside, they're quite bleak, I've got to say. Like, Watership Down, Animal Farm, When the Wind Blows. These are some 
This is some bleak shit, man. Yeah. I would not... In a way, I'd be like, watch them. They're good, but... I don't it's, know. All, it's all for the sad, sad children. Exactly, sad Melancholic children. Melancholic children. But I did discover that the film The Thief and the Cobbler was a UK animation, which if you're not... Uh, if you've never heard of that, that's a film that was in production or post-production for over like several decades and was eventually released in the 90s in a sort of somewhat completed form. And it's this kind of Arabian Nights-esque tale about uh, a sort of quest in ancient Arabia, sort what? of Alibaba slash Aladdin slash... Yeah, well, isn't, isn't part of the story with it that, that it was shelved because Disney was making Aladdin or something and it was... Uh... Yeah, yeah, thematically, think, it was too similar. I think that was one of the, the set, setting was too yeah, similar. one of the setbacks it encountered because like it started in like the late sixties. They started having the ideas for it, and I think it got a bit of momentum in the eighties. And they're like, "Oh, we're making Aladdin," so it got pushed back a bit. But it's really worth um, seeking out. It's amazingly animated. The animation could, is absolutely beautiful, even though it's unfinished. That yeah. almost adds something to it. It looks like you know uh, a cool music video or something. Yeah, absolutely. And I was reading the Wikipedia article about it, and um, it kept on saying he hired this legendary animator and every single bit of the history has got several links to the amount of talent that was working on this thing so really worth watching i would say it's yeah. on youtube Coraline is also a very good movie it's not a uk uh, production but it is based on a book by neil gaiman who's a british author yeah and has a british cast you know yeah including french and saunders so it's definitely a uk counts so, so thanks. Dad. I hope your friend finds that helpful. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. It was comic relief recently. I don't. I have to say that I've sort of stopped watching it because uh, I, I don't have a TV now. Sure. So I don't really. It's the sort of thing where you'd like flick on. Uh, I'm a. Because yeah. you wouldn't sit down and be like, now to watch six hours of this. Well, I mean, the amount of entertainment per sobering uh, short video about the horrors of the world, the ratio is too weighted, as it should be. Well, how, how much of it? How much of it did you watch? I watched. I just skimmed through on iPlayer. I didn't really watch any of it. To be honest with you, because I, I was just wondering if if there. I mean, it's obviously you know a worthy um, enterprise that I'm sure generates a lot of money for charity and stuff. But I wonder if like the format of it plays into the phenomenon a bit of um, uh, compassion fatigue, in that those kinds of videos that they have, are all have the same kind of quality, and it doesn't have that much impact because you just feel like you've seen that you know so yeah. much, so many times before. It's yeah, that's very true. Also, I think it's changed a bit in recent years because it's less exciting when there was five channels and just like one channel was like, it was almost like when I was a kid, I just figured everyone on TV knew each other and they live in this sort of alternate world and they're all on the same channel for one night and all the shows cross over. But now everything's so homogenous and, you know, no one watches TV live anymore. So it doesn't have that event quality. quality. Well, they were trying to recapture a bit of that water cooler uh, moment kind of feel with the uh, centerpiece of the whole comic relief evening, which was a sequel to classic film Love Actually, uh, which catches up with some of the your favourite characters from Love Actually, that big uh, sprawling ensemble mini-stories rom-com thing. It seems to have kind of established itself as a classic, but it's also a film that doesn't seem that good now, I feel like, if you watch it. Admittedly, we were, you know, 13, 14 when I don't it came know, out. It's so. just ITV2 play it so often that Stockholm Syndrome is just, like, sat in. Yeah. Everyone's so familiar with it. What I found quite funny about this new one was that he'd written no new jokes. And 
Yeah, all the, it's just the update of yeah. all your favorite other jokes. And uh, But as if those scenes were like now iconic, just through repetition rather than being actually good. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, incredibly. I felt I was kind of like uh, amazed by how lazy it was. Like, <laughs> hadn't written, literally hadn't written any new jokes. It was like he wrote it in about five minutes, like in a very short deadline. The real the real achievement was this, the scheduling assistant getting all those people... You know, yeah, back. I couldn't believe they got you they know got them all Liam pretty much Neeson all of them back. And yeah. all these people back and then giving them nothing to do. Absolutely like... nothing. Liam Neeson, it looks like they just caught him when he was out for a coffee, or he just was visiting the Tate Modern, and uh, it was just like roll with it. Nothing happens in this scene, but just you sit here and it's like, oh, you're back. I think the one thing the um this sequel proved there was just the quality of the cast and their ability to their ability squeeze to, yeah, blood like... out of a stone in every scene. Yeah, it's true. I mean, Liam Neeson had absolutely nothing to work with. Uh, but Hugh Grant and uh, Rowan Atkinson were doing quite good. So I, I, I laughed at uh, Rowan Atkinson's sort of, um, you know, Pratt falling around with the uh, tying the bows on the red noses or whatever. He might be like the funniest person ever, Rowan Atkinson. Because that literally is like out of nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, <laughs> just, like... just him saying yogurt covered raisins was extremely funny. He doesn't even do a very elaborate... Like, when he's wrapping up the um, necklace or whatever it is in the first movie, it looks incredibly elaborate. In this movie, it's like they didn't even get him any props. He's, got, he's literally just got a plastic bag and some sweets, and he's got to turn that into, like, some kind of um, crazy sort of uh, premium offering. But he just did it. And he just does it. Oh, what a genius. It's, it is incredible. What um, did you think... What did you think of Hugh Grant's updated Prime Minister's speech to inspire us all? Well, it's one of the worst moments in the original film, and it was so much worse <laughs> in the rerun version of it. For one thing, his character is like very clearly channeling like Blair and Cameron, but he's kind of talking about now. So he's kind of like in the world in the Love Actually verse. He's become he's like back as Prime Minister, and he wasn't Prime Minister before. Yeah. And um, someone puts their hand up and it's like, oh, things aren't, you know, you, you gave an optimistic speech last time and now the people are a bit worried. But in that, you know, universe, like who caused the problems? Because in this one, it was the person who he's pretending to kind of be. Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. Like, why do I want to see him doing an impression of David Cameron telling us that he thinks the future looks bright? It just makes me want to fucking like, you know, have him guillotined. <laughs> it would be amazing if Hugh Grant had like his character had fucked a pig and like all this shit had come out about him yeah and like it was just the uh short film uh was a way to address all the problems of the original <laughs> like when andrew lincoln turns up his science chihuahua job is just waiting for him is like what the fuck man what the fuck what are you doing yeah fuck off fuck off you fucking creep you've been coming here every week for the last 13 years and like the, leave the, my wife alone and he, and he gets sectioned you're literally my best friend yeah how could you do this to me yeah, I mean, even like that scene, they actually updated in quite a good way because it, they, they completely, the reality of it totally broke down and it was just like yeah. complete silliness, you know, which is really the only way it can go, even though they have to have some sort of like dummies married a model type joke, whatever, which was like stupid. But yeah, with this, with this Hugh Grant thing, it's just like, it was the most, it, it, you could not have done it in a more like self-satisfied uh to do like middle class liberal way where it's like yeah when politics gets bad it just means that you feel a bit uncomfortable when you when you hear the news you know but like your life is fine so it's like oh i hate politics now oh you know brexit is so upsetting but it's okay 
Metallica's new album, he, he referenced it. It's so funny. You know, he said hotline bling, ha, 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 ha. It's like, it's this version of politics that only exists on that level of um, the chats you have with your friends or whatever. Yeah. What if, like, war had broken out or something? Like, <laughs> would he still, would that still be the scene? <laughs> You know what I mean? And he was like, yeah. oh, yeah, sure. Like thousands of our citizens are being slaughtered in the streets, yeah. you know, every day. The river is running red. But, yeah. um, you know, the Metallica's new album is pretty great. Yeah. Would have come believe it aired the day after Joe Cox was murdered. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, well, there's fascists Direction like chopping down that. our MPs yeah. in the streets. But, you know. Ooh, yeah, but it doesn't make me as mad as that yellow M&M. He's pretty annoying. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I find like frustrating about Richard Curtis because he just seems like he means well, but his just execution so, is so like yeah. cringe-inducing. He is someone who's um, I feel like the politics and the general climate is just moving on from, and it and and had that speech was just a way to absolutely hammer home how much the like the world no longer applies like that kind of like Blair optimism that sort of you know Love Actually is like a sort of post Britpop movie. Where yeah. things, there's still enough of that, like, hey, everything's fine and great, you know, spirits from the 90s. Uh, and, it's very true, actually. Yeah, and then... And, like but his like, whole career, like, Four Weddings was, like, 94 or something, wasn't it, right? Like, Notting Hill. Yeah. It's all the new like, labor. He absolutely cannot respond to any... Uh, that, 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 like, change in political climate. And it was just this kind of yeah. clanging... That's why he made that time travel movie. <laughs> so we can get out go somewhere else yeah go somewhere where his films are more relevant go back to the 90s oh, that was brilliant then yeah so ba- I'm, I'm basically I'm really excited for like the third movie after the world is just like a nuclear wasteland and it's all about how it's you know well chin up chin up lads like I've Britain's got, still a great country I've got a French and Saunders box set for us all to watch whatever before we die of, in the nuclear winter an amusing story broke this week that two struggling screenwriters in Los Angeles duped Hollywood I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. By putting on Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, who are the writers of Superbad. Evan Goldberg is his um, collaborator. I think also directed or co-directed uh, the interview and This Is The End. And these two struggling guys were like, how do we get our awesome uh, comedy script, The Kosher Nostra, which is a pretty funny name. Very funny read by people would just pretend to be successful writers and it worked amazingly the real writers are these guys called jonathan witz and jeremy Spector, and apparently they were huge fans of rogan and goldberg they said like any young writers we have our heroes seth and evan are those guys for us they inspired us to write the script in the first place and the script was written with the whole judd apatel gang in mind to the point where the character names were named after actors such as Aziz Sanzari, James Franco, all those guys. Which which those which they have done themselves, of course. Yeah, exactly. Movies, so, so I guess that's why I just that sell the authenticity. Of, that was part of it, yeah. And yeah, like um 
people such as Ted Sarandos, Megan Ellison, Scott Stuber. Huge Ma- names. Ma- big Gordon names. and Will Ferrell. Well, Megan Ellison is very big. She produces Paul Thomas Anderson's movies. And, okay. um, oh, right. Okay. I didn't know. American Hustle was... stuff. She owns Anna Perna Pictures. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So, that yeah. It did it genuinely oh, go wait, to these is top she, is CEOs. she sort of like rich heiress who just has great taste in movies? Yeah. Like her dad owns Oracle. Right. Sort of massive. I yeah. don't know even they do. Soft, a software company. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, so they they pretended to be Rogan and Goldberg, and successfully pers- they put enough like fart and dick and cum jokes into their uh, yeah uh, into their movie, and also Jewish jokes, I assume, judging by the title. Yeah, and Rogan's team found out about it, and they've uh, issued a sort of cease and desist legal notice. Yeah, so the game's up. Their fake agent name that they chose to submit the uh, fake Rogan and Goldberg movie is called Danny Goldstein. <laughs> it's not the most subtle. It's called Dewey Jew Guy. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, their plan could not have worked any better because not only did they actually get their script read by these various people, but it's turned up as a quite a sympathetically written news story, and everyone who reads this will be like, ah, you know. Yeah. No, obviously, no one is going to give a shit. Absolutely. And it's like their names are in the story. And uh, basically the lesson of this is it is a good idea to do this. So right. the, the only thing is that, w- that we have to decide now is who we are going to impersonate, Danny, me and you. Who, wh- which writing partnership do you look up to? Um, Purvis and Wade, the Bond writers. Yes, this is perfect. We've got to write the script for Bond 24. Maybe we should actually start. Wh- have they made that already? um it could use a rewrite though (laughs) it needs a remake uh i don't know i thought maybe they have i thought i thought last was 23 but i don't know dying of a day was 20 so 24 was spectre okay all right did need a rewrite to be honest with you that was shit all right but let's let's start working on maybe 26 yeah to give us a bit of time sure sure. and then we can submit that as purvis and wade or how about this billy wilder and iil diamond yeah they are dead but that means that they won't be saying that we aren't them. Yeah, they can't send cease and desist letters unless their estate gets wise. Mm, that mm. would be that would be a problem. Do you think this script, uh, the Kosher Nostra, is actually amazing? But they can't possibly make it now because it endorses this line of um, it's going to break down the system. They're going to people impersonate people over the shop. You won't yeah, know yeah. what's you what. won't know who's who in Hollywood anymore. Exactly, it will turn the entire institution of Hollywood into a house of lies. And that'd be terrible. That would be terrible. Uh, Although maybe, saying that, it'll just turn it into complete meritocracy. Because they're like, we don't know who wrote this. <laughs> so it could be anybody. It'll be like The Voice or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's going to be like two producers talking to each other. And it's like, how's your day lining up? It's like, well, I got five meetings in a row with Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I'm reading 60 scripts and they're all written by uh, Dustin Lance Black. <laughs> Who's that? It's the guy who wrote uh, Milk. And he's married to... Um, Tom Daly. Got, what? What, this diver? Yeah. Oh, wow. And he um he threw some shade at... um is it, who, who the fuck wrote that Bond song, The Writings on the Wall? Sam... Is it Sam Smith? Sam no. Smith. I, yeah, it was Sam Smith. I was like, that's a pub, isn't it? No, it's Sam Smith. And he wrote that... He gave that speech about how he was honored to be like the first like openly gay guy to get an Oscar and like, just like schooled him on his like ignorance it's like quite Sam, harshly yeah, on yeah. Twitter because he's gay and he won for milk. Right, yeah, absolutely. It's like, and I was like the ninth or tenth. I, lo- I, I love that Sam's Smith's efforts were so half-assed that he didn't even, like, uh, he, he half-assed the response to getting an Oscar as well. Like, he, yeah. wrote this, he wrote this song in, like, 20 minutes or whatever. Yeah. And then even when he's giving his award speech, he's like, uh, it's such an honor to be the first man to win an award. 
<laughs> the first man. <laughs> I'm the first man to ever win an award. That's so that was a bit of a tangent. The thing is, either they will make this film or they will make a film about the pitch to make the film. Because it sounds like exactly the sort of caper that the, you know, yeah. the, the kind of man-children, fail-sons uh, that uh, Rogan usually plays in movies would undertake. Absolutely. Um, Him and his stoner buddy have got this great script, but they just can't, any, can't get anyone to read it. There must be a Seth Rogen movie. James Franco which... plays a version of himself as like an arrogant A-list star they kidnap or something. Yeah, exactly. It exactly. writes it itself. It writes itself, yeah. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ass-quenchingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So Free Fire, this is the latest film from Ben Wheatley, is directed by him and written by him and his wife and regular collaborator Amy Jump. And the plot is very simple. It's set in Boston in the 70s and Killian Murphy and Michael Smiley play two members of the IRA who have um, come over from Ireland to buy some guns. And Michael Smiley has hired his sort of idiot brother-in-law, played by Sam Riley, and his friend, played by Enzo Salenti, to be their sort of backup muscle just so they have more guys for the deal. Army Hammer and Brie Larson are these uh, ne'er-do-wells who are brokering the deal, and the gun seller is Chateau Copley, uh, who's backed by Noah Taylor, Jack Rayner, and Babo Creasy. And it turns out Jack Rayner and Samurai's character were in a bar fight the night before, and before you know it, things escalate very quickly and results in everyone getting shot and shooting at each other. Cue 70 minutes of gunfire. And here is a clip of Army Hammer meeting... Uh, Killy Murphy and Michael Smiley at the beginning of the movie. This is Ord. It's good to meet you, boys. Thanks for coming out. I'll be later. You didn't masturbate before you got here, did you? What? I told you I don't want to work with anybody who's carrying a loaded weapon. <laughs> so if you need time, go find yourself a dark corner. <laughs> I'm just saying, relax. It's all good. If you wouldn't mind, as we agreed upon, Check for wires. Got a gun. Good. Well, soon you guys will have even more. Okay, no wires if no one's listening in. I guess we're all friends. The, uh, the fag and the retard are an interesting choice of muscle to bring to the party. You know what? Fuck the small talk. Let's buy some guns, eh? All right. Step into my office. So I, I really enjoyed it. When I first saw it, I saw this at the London Film Festival. I think I was a little underwhelmed by it, but I think that reaction was to do with expectation because I really like Ben Wheatley's films and he's a very ambitious, prolific filmmaker and he seems to be able to turn a film around in a year and he's really brilliant at mixing genres and doing something fresh and unexpected with them. Like Kill List is like a sort of hitman movie, but it's also this... Kind of creepy horror Creepy films, meditation horror on the fallacy of vigilante justice and sort of that kind of post-Iraq war malaise sort of thing. And so when I heard he was shooting this action movie, in a sh- which is a shootout in a, in a warehouse, uh, I didn't know what I was expecting, but it is just a shootout in a warehouse. So, but it's a very fun shootout and I enjoyed it, but it's very much an exercise in style, which purely exists because why not? And I think it makes sense in this filmography if you view it as the film he made after High Rise. And so there's no subtext to this film. Yeah, he was just exhausted by constantly having to deal with um, imagery and... Uh, Grand Balladian themes. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there's loads of things to enjoy about it. The cast are excellent. 
And I think one of the most impressive elements of the script is the way all the characters really pop. And in the first 20 minute opening, before the shit hits the fan, it establishes everybody and their motivations and their allegiances. And that's kind of the bit of the movie I enjoyed the most. And there's lots of sharp lines. And the fact that you know that shit's going to kick off gives, gives it a certain tension. And it's just like a really cool group of actors. If I had to single out any of the cast, Shadow Copley probably makes the biggest impression. His character is already sort of larger in life and Shadow Copley is completely going for it. And uh, if you're not a Shadow Copley fan, I think you'll probably find it unbearable. I, I, I am. I love but it. I like him a lot. So I think he was kind of brilliant in it. And We're I was running a pizza delivery service. <laughs> yeah. He's also, he's called Vern and he's constantly making puns based on his name, <laughs> which I think is just him ad-libbing. It's like watching Vern. I don't know. Sounds, sounds yeah, good. It's, it's great. He's the sort of noxious guy everybody hates, even before they start shooting him. And I also thought Army Hammer was kind of great in it. And he's this sort of like well-groomed Jewish badass character. And it's a bit like he's playing the Henry Cavill role from Man From U.N.C.L.E. It's like, I wanted to play that role and now I just will. This other movie. Some of the American accents are a little ropey. Um, Noah Taylor, Sam Riley, and Jack Rayner have such distinctive actual accents that they occasionally slip out. And I think it's not a huge problem, but it's indicative of a feeling I had watching the movie, which is just like you're watching actors dress up and have fun. And uh, I saw this great tweet review, which is like, it's like watching celebrities play paintball, which I don't think is untrue. Yeah. Um, but they're cool actors and they have cool 70s suits and it's just, uh, that's the movie. And like, as long as you know that going in, you won't be disappointed and there's lots to enjoy. The action is really well done. The whole impetus for the project was apparently Ben Wheatley getting a bit fatigued with all these kind of cities being destroyed and wanted something more grounded and physical and it definitely achieves that. And it is impressive how technically accomplished it is and the fact that you know where everyone is in this warehouse and you never get disorientated there's a lot of clarity of the action and um something very pleasing about uh the arc of all the characters that there's all these badasses at the beginning but they all end up bleeding and just crawling about and if the film is about anything it's sort of about unchecked male ego and the way that this could be easily resolved by not shooting each other but I guess it's, it's almost like an anti-gun movie in a way because it's like people have guns, people just end up killing each other because people are stupid. Yeah. And the way people are constantly getting injuries leads to these kind of unconventional action sequences where the pacing is very slow because no one can move very fast. So <laughs> towards the end of the movie, there's like these sort of chase sequences, but everyone's just crawling. <laughs> and there's a lot of humor in that. I think it does dip a little bit in the middle and the shooting each other reaches a point of diminishing returns because there's only so far you can take that. But it does, for the most part, a good job of varying up the action. And there's these kind of pleasing sort of mini missions the characters have to achieve, which is kind of like how you have to tackle these kind of movies because otherwise it'd just be over in 10 minutes. And the very ending is a little not bad, but just not particularly strong or memorable. It just ends because... 90 minutes have passed. Uh, the, the clips are empty. The clips are empty, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah, my reaction is probably a little cooler than the general critical consensus, and I completely understand someone seeing and having a total blast because that's the point of the movie. But uh, it's just like, I would say it's a fun but not completely memorable time of the movies. But it's not really trying to be anything more than that. So it completely succeeds. Sounds and I'd, I'd happily watch it again. So... Want to, want to go see it uh, tomorrow? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. It's a date. <laughs> <laughs> the 
looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush. Speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. Sam, I heard you saw a serious film, not about guns and shooting each other, but about like themes and that. Yes, I did, Danny. I saw a very serious film, The Lost City of Zed. It's not very serious, um, but it's somewhat serious. Certainly, like uh, moody, I would say. Ooh. It's directed by James Gray, who's um, had a slightly checkered Hollywood history. Um, his last movie was from 2013 called The Immigrant, um, with Marion Cotillard in it and Joaquin Phoenix. Prior to that, he's made We Own the Night and Two Lovers and the Yard. Um, and this is directed written by him. It's about a uh, Victorian great British explorer called Percy Fawcett, who was the inspiration for the Arthur Conan Doyle novel, The Lost World. Uh, and it follows him in his sort of life's efforts to uh, discover this lost ancient city in uh, somewhere around Bolivia and Brazil called Zed, or that he dubs Zed. Um, and he's played by Charlie Hunnam, and it's also got Robert Pattinson in it and Sienna Miller and Spider-Man himself. Tom Holland, little baby Tom Holland. Uh, Here is a clip of um, Percy Fawcett at the beginning of the film. He's a military man. He's a major and he gets summoned to the Royal Geographical Society because they would like to send him to South America. And here is a bunch of extraordinarily posh men talking about the colonies. This is as good a map of Bolivia as we have. Most of it's blank, as you can see. Nothing's really known about it at all. The land of primitives... But there are rubber plantations all over Amazonia. Very profitable. There is now considerable argument between Bolivia and Brazil as to what constitutes their border. So fantastically high is the price of rubber that war could arise. Do you follow? I do, sir. Mm -hmm. This is far more than just survey work. This is exploration in the jungle. The environment's brutally difficult. Terrible disease, murderous savages. The journey may well mean your life. At the very least, you will be gone for several years. But were you to succeed, such an undertaking could earn you soldierly decoration and even reclaim your family name. Oh, bloody good. We've got a bloody problem with our bloody maps. I think you should do your whole review in the style of the characters. I think I I will. Um, This is quite a good film. (laughs) I liked it because it was about people like me, real people. Uh, No, that would be exhausting Uh, for everyone involved, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, Yeah, it's been pretty well received, this movie. Um, And it's certainly very striking. Uh, but I found it like somewhat flat and it's a, and there are definitely some issues with the project. There are basically two kind of different ways that you can go with this thing, which is kind of like an Indiana Jones-esque kind of uh, caper, you know, where uh, it's like a jungle sort of um, adventure story thing. Um, or it's the sort of Conradian psychological, uh, you know, or like a Guiri Wrath of God kind of thing where it's this like journey into the hell of nature and man and things like that. And I think the film treads a slightly uneasy road between these two parts. It definitely kind of leans more towards the latter option. Um, but it is at the same time a relatively um, straightforward story of a kind of heroic man doing 
awesome deeds you know it's not a it's not a tale of um you know imperial british hubris as you know played out through this one guy it's like a film that depicts him as a ridiculously handsome matinee idol type um and yet at the same time is trying to critique his mission you know so it's right. it's a little bit uneasy and i, I think that, like it's a very difficult film to make really because um first of all the uh victorian british aristocracy are kind of an inherently kind of silly class of people they sure. all have like moustaches, moustaches they have they have silly accents. voices and this particular activity of um uh traveling halfway across the world to like trek about in the jungle is like you know it's such a something out of a boy's own adventure from a different era that it's yeah. hard to take fully seriously and it, it's completely unnecessary just like just don't you know yeah. the world's my garden i'm just gonna check it out exactly exactly and 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 i think that the film never quite kind of grasps this nettle because um it it justifies him in it like too much and and i think like one of the issues with it is that it um to an extent it accepts the uh you know, it doesn't try to over um, modernize him or it accepts, you know, the sort of flaws of uh, the different um, mores, social mores of the past. Uh, but it also is constantly kind of trying to justify them to sort of keep you kind of on board with it. And it, all of those times it was doing that doesn't quite work because it never rings true. Right. And anytime he was acting like a douchebag, I was like, good. And, <laughs> uh, and whenever he was sort of sounding like pseudo woke, like a 21st century man it's it didn't work i think yeah yeah and uh, his wife sienna miller is particularly afflicted with this it's a classic bad hollywood wife role and uh which women are you know uh majorly afflicted with does she um, nag in him at the moment well she has two modes either she is nagging him to like stay home with the kids or she's like supporting him in his sort of manly adventures but in either mode she is has nothing to do in her you know her, her, the entire orbit of her character is um, centered around him, and of course. Uh, of course, and I understand, you know that that's like the the scope of the story. But it's still like you've seen this so many times, sure, sure. And the the attempt to give her character depth is basically to have her flick back and forth between supportive and naggy, you know, so that like that becomes eventually three dimensional. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so there's there's two notes, and as long as you play them alternately, it becomes you know deep yeah, yeah. enough. It's like if you get two pictures quick enough to create... You, you, you get a, It's like a hologram. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and Sienna Miller is doing a great job in the role. She's uh, extremely good, and it's like... She's squeezing everything she can out of the character, but it is ultimately a bit limited. Uh, and she has to say things like, I'm an independent woman, and sort of make these kind of, like... There's a bit where she's in the Royal Geographical Society and she's like, I should be with my husband. And some irritating orderly is like, that area is only for men, madam, or something like that. It's like, yeah. you know, she's like, oh, I'm so angry because women should be allowed to go anywhere. Um, you see, yeah. contextualizing it too much, you sort of feel it's, the, well, the modern hand a bit. Yeah, too. I, I, yeah, exactly. Because otherwise, I think, you know, if, you, if, if it doesn't have those touches, then it becomes like a film about completely foreign people. And, and the, but I think that is what it should be. You know, yeah, the past was a long time ago. The past was a long time ago, and there's nothing particularly hard to understand about his motivations. In that, the there is this kind of element of psychological mystery to the film, and it it's sort of trying to evoke this sense of wonder from exploring a different world. But I think the act, but what he's doing, um, is very easily explicable in in terms of a relatively unreconstructed, uh, old-fashioned aristocratic mindset. 
It's like, of course he wants to go and fucking find uh, ancient city in the jungle, you know? Yeah. It, it's not, there's, it's not, um, there's nothing particularly mysterious about it. And it's sort of, you can't layer on that much meaning to that quest. It's only purely, you know, for his own sense of self-satisfaction. Um, and the movie is also constantly, it throws up various different motivations for him. So like firstly, he's sort of reclaiming his family name. And then a bit later on, he, uh, wants to prove that the uh, people of South America are not the savages that the you know less woke members of the British aristocracy <laughs> believe them to be. Um, and it, it sort of basically can't quite cover the essential thinness of that project. And I'm not saying the film suffers from having him do multiple trips. Apparently in the reality, of, um, in reality, Percy Fawcett took eight trips to wow, try okay. to find this lost city. Uh, and in the movie, it doesn't take that many. Uh, but it still feels, even though the film is very long and very languorous, it's very slow pace, but it feels too easy to get to and from the jungle if he's doing right, it multiple yeah, yeah. times. Sure. And it doesn't really take you into that heart of darkness because he's constantly leaving. You know, yeah. like the jungle seems, the, the movie basically is quite strong at the beginning. Before you, before it kind of shows its hand, it was quite strong because the first time you visit the jungle, it's very foreign, it's very dangerous, it's very creepy and it's quite satisfying to watch this ultra-confident uh, military hero discover the limits of his own abilities, you know, faced with an environment that he's unfamiliar with. But then once he gets out of that, then he just is back, and then he goes back to the jungle, sure. and he's like, has back, you know, and it's like it loses that, um, uh, that sense of danger because uh, it just becomes an environment for him to visit rather than this, like, odyssey that he goes on and is transformed. Sure, yeah. So I think maybe the the, his, the um, history of it puts a bit of a limit on the movie in that way. Uh, having said all of that, it's very beautifully photographed. It looks absolutely stunning. All of the on-location stuff looks amazing. Um, and uh, I quite liked the, the generally kind of moody tone of it, that it doesn't try too much to... Um, uh, pack things with action or it's not like desperate to entertain you every second it's very much you know it kind of looks a bit like a Farrell and Ball catalogue and it's like you know if Farrell and Ball not only did uh, Victorian drawing rooms but also like jungle environments um, and it just wants to you know let you luxuriate um, a little bit in that experience the performance is very good on the whole Robert Patterson is very very good in it it's really fun seeing him crop up I just like him yeah um he's grown a giant beard for the role and it's a completely um non-vain performance he is, is there's nothing showy about it he doesn't have like a big grandstanding moment he's just a character actor basically in the movie but he's got a lot of charisma and you find yourself kind of wishing that he was the focus of the film to be honest even though the way he's written on the page his character is just like man with beard essentially um and uh as, as already mentioned Sienna miller is extremely good um, Tom Holland doesn't have a huge amount to do, but you know he acquits himself quite well. And Charlie Hunnam, I don't know. I feel like he's a little bit limited as an actor, um, and maybe it's just that he hasn't had the right kind of roles. But that oh come on, he was incredible in Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim, come on. Well, the thing is that like the last two things I saw him in were Pacific Rim and in uh, Crimson Peak, and in both those uh, movies he's playing relatively kind of cardboard cutout type roles, like straightforwardly heroic stand-up guys basically and he came across i thought kind of slightly like um stilted in those but i just thought it was because he's being painted with a broad brush and that like fits the kind of characters that he was playing like but in this film it's sort of similar and in a way it still makes a certain amount of sense because he's this um buttoned up british aristocrat type who probably always thinks that he's writing a letter to the times of london when he talks and he just has that 
uh, manner about him. Sure. But I don't know. I didn't, I never quite fully buy it. It's, it always feels like um, a performance within the character, you know, everything he says. Uh, and he basically looks like he's posing for a photograph at all times. He's maybe a little bit over sexy. You know, he, he looks like a male model. Too sexy. Yeah. So I, I sort of, I don't know. I think it was a bit of an, it's a, it's in a way a bit of an odd project. And I was a bit wary going into it at how, whether it would just feel really uncomfortably colonial. And it's not as bad as it could be. It's not sort of tub-thumpingly jingoistic, but it's a little clumsy in the way it deals with those things. And um, as a story, somewhat flat because of its efforts to create a dark, mysterious tale out of what seems i think to modernize as just like a story of you know basically like rich obsessive hubris a little break now in the show because danny has to blow his nose and sam is trying on different clothes and katie's cooking sausage rolls I think they're almost done And now they're definitely done, 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 done The Void, this is a new horror movie that's got a bit of buzz It did very well on the festival circuit And now it's coming to screens There are only a few screens, so you've got to seek it out It is written and directed by Jeremy Gillespie and Stephen Kostansky uh, Jeremy Gillespie was an art director or is an art director and Steven's a makeup artist and they've worked on some high profile projects they know their stuff and the art direction and makeup is very good in this film so they know what they're doing the plot is basically there's a police officer called Carter and he discovers a blood soaked man limping down a deserted road terrifying terrifying premise so he rushes them to a local hospital which is being shut down so there's a bare bones night shift staff and things take a turn for the worse when these mysterious cloak figures surround the hospital and try to get in. And what starts off as a sort of uh, old 80s siege movie quickly becomes something far more strange. So you can't fault this film for ambition, and it's very lovingly made, uh, but it didn't work for me. And that's because I think there are some basic problems with the story's construction that prevent you from being fully invested in the action. And the way things are set up is quite messy. The setting is very sort of John Carpenter, which is itself kind of Rio Bravo of these disparate characters all hold up in an isolated location. Obviously, the police officer's ex-wife is there. There's a pregnant woman. There's a drug addict. They've all got problems. They're all pretty broad strokes. But it lacks a certain amount of internal logic. Um, And for example, it establishes this group of menacing hooded figures who are very menacing looking. It's a cool design. And they're trying to get in, and they barricade the front entrance. But you never see them, like, barricade the back entrance or check all the windows and doors. And there's definitely... You've got to do that Night of the Living Dead shit. Exactly. It's like, as as opposed to something like um, Green Room, which is brilliant at establishing where everyone is and what all the stakes are and what are the rules of the movie, this doesn't. And so people just sort of, like, shit happens if and when the movie requires it to happen. So it's hard to invest in because you're like, shouldn't they all be dead now? Like, it kind of crosses its own logic lines if you know what i'm saying and uh it's a film which starts off as a john carpenter movie and then moves on to something far more strange but it hasn't successfully established that original genre and so it's a bit like they've built this fun theme park ride but forgot to put seats on it so (laughs) like um 
in the second half it's like forget everything you thought was gonna happen and i'm like i didn't know what's going on <laughs> to begin with I'm, i was already confused and perplexed before the widget happened um so it didn't really work for me in that regard the plotting is kind of all over the place these kind of movies a bit like free fire i guess i like these little missions tied together and uh some of the scenes in between this really drag and there's a bit too much backstory and sort of lore and uh you know like complicated bits of mythic world building which the movie doesn't really need but you imagine the director's really into however where the movie does succeed is in these really cool imaginative practical effects and it goes in this sort of lovecraftian tentacle monster stuff and that's all very well put together but it was very much a movie which isn't the sum of its parts and it's kind of leans too heavily on this sort of 80s referencing it's like a sort of the ultimate fan fiction movie of an 80s movie but it just feels like a film by people who've only seen films yeah yeah so it feels like a sort of ends up despite all the love that's gone to it it's only can be a pale imitation of something they've seen so i don't know i imagine it would work for a certain type of audience but i am not that audience i don't i just didn't think it was that good <sighs> what can i say fair enough don't enter the void also a good film. <laughs> Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. Let's join Share between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Stop talking now. All right, so to round off uh, our... Biggest release of the week. Massive baby reviews. The biggest release of the week. Um, Revolution, new art for a new world. This is a documentary. Been waiting for this for years. Me too, me too. Uh, It's about um, Russian avant-garde art. Of course. um, Around the time of the Russian Revolution, um, in uh, whenever it was, 1918 or something like that. The the, uh, Around the sort of modernist period in the early 20th century. And this is out on DVD on the 3rd of April, if you want to check it out. And Danny and I sat down to watch it yesterday, like the couple of art-loving lads that we are. Yeah. So I didn't know anything about it uh, before <laughs> before watching this movie, except for the subject matter. And it is... There's there's not a huge amount to say about it, I think. It's, it's basically um, is has the sort of mode of a BBC documentary. Like, if you flicked on TV and you... Uh, uh, and you're just watching like a documentary about art it would kind of be like this yeah there's a voiceover that explains things to you they have uh, talking heads and they take you through some of the key art figures from the era uh with you know little bits of um readings from their letters and sort of some reconstructions and and things like that and basically what i would say about it is that it covers a fascinating period both historically and in terms of art and there's some brilliant art that is uh, shown in the film. And if you don't know anything about it, uh, I recommend watching it because it's pretty good introduction, I think. Um, it, it covers a lot of ground and uh, it shows you some really cool stuff and it leads, leaves you with a lot of leads if you want to follow. If you, you sort yeah. of, you'll see, you know, your favorite uh, piece of art and you want to look up and find out more about it or want to find out more about the history behind it. Um, and it And it sort of does all that quite efficiently. But I would say the way it's constructed is uh, maybe slightly clumsy. It's got this uh, kind of narrative voiceover of 
which is written as 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 if the filmmaker is a woman called Margie Kinmonth um, is on a journey, except she doesn't feature in the film. So no. it's got it's written as though she says things like I and and I've discovered that uh, Malievich, you know, uh, once lived in this house or whatever, but you don't actually see her go there. So it's this odd mix of uh you know just a straightforward like pictures and talking heads thing with that kind of uh more personal individual journey i discover russian art you know uh, follow what i'm up to kind of documentary um and there's also some of the it's you know it has to constantly do things because it's about an inherently static subject yeah some of the ways in which it tried to entertain you were a little clumsy i think well because it's from a period where there's not that much footage to draw from uh it's i think it you know it trying to compensate with some flash editing and underscoring but i think it struggles in the way so many of these art programs do in that you would rather just see the gallery exhibition called russian art in the 20s and look at these paintings and just read all their stuff but as a 90 minute feature film they have to make a way for that not to feel like a lecture yeah so they got to jazz it up somehow. Yeah, I mean the the um, period footage is brilliant. There's some actually some fantastic uh, footage uh, they've dug up some archive stuff. But they've also got this kind of um, theater, uh, yes. this avant-garde theater it's a bit stuff, sort of six-form drama, so. which is a bit six-form dramery. And also, uh, oddly, there's two scenes which are kind of direct reconstructions of two relatively random events uh, in the course of the history the film is telling. And they felt totally superfluous and like slightly like cringe. A little cringe. A little bit cringe. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's it does, it's not it's not there's no real use in picking it apart too much. It's basically um, a uh, it, it kind of reads like it's a bit like watching the syllabus for like an A level or something. Yeah, it, it, it kind of takes you through all of these um, different artists and their work is really excellent um and it's relatively entertaining and we enjoyed it and i didn't know that much about this stuff before watching it and i felt educated by the end of it it's well, also I, sorry well, go ahead well i'm a art scholar as you know so you are I, an art scholar. i knew everything about it but i thought this is quite good uh it's also got the very entertaining um performance by tom hollander <laughs> as the artist malievich doing a kind of like i'm gonna kill them all kind of voice uh the, the, the reputation of this artist appeared to be as a rather fearsome character. And there's some great clips of Tom Tom Hollander, who's basically spent his entire career playing like foppish or useless, um, like upper class Brits, sort yeah. of sounding like he wants to like kill you uh, while talking about suprematism with like this picture of a terrifying looking man, <laughs> this sort of evil demonic self-portrait uh, by Majevich with Tom Hollander. Like, I have discovered the secret of life, or whatever it is he's saying. It's pretty. That's pretty fun. Yeah. Well, I'm a Hollander completist, so I'm glad to take this off my list. My favorite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen, but she wants to be in radio, so she starts a podcast with her friends, and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. Hey, hey. So uh, we're recording this a few days later, so there may be a different ambience. We're in a new place. Yeah, and many things have happened in our relationship since then, so... Yeah, the atmosphere between Danny and I has chilled distinctly, so... Uh, it's going to take me a while to forgive you. Well, you shouldn't have given me the opportunity. No, don't! You shouldn't have allowed me. Don't say me. it! Sorry, well, what can I say? I'm a total bastard. 
and everyone knows that now. So uh, we've got a cheat for you in the form of a leaked script. So there was some news recently that Aaron Sorkin has been approached, apparently, by both DC and Marvel, or there's, they're in some way interested in getting Sorkin to write you know, superhero movies for sure. them. Uh, I've no idea why. Can't really understand why. Um, his general, like, mode doesn't seem particularly suited, I would say, to superhero films. No, not really. So. It, would, it would actually be kind of hilarious in DC in particular, given that, like, everyone hates the direction that they're taking their cinematic universe, and so they decide to go a completely different but, like, equally awful way. <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty spectacular. Of course, corrected in just a dramatic uh, U-turn, but just... <laughs> Yeah. It's still heading towards the rocks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was an interview with him where he was saying that he didn't, like, know anything about comic books and didn't read them, but, you know, he'd certainly dive in if uh, if they wanted him. Well, he probably didn't have Facebook, and he wrote that Facebook movie. Exactly. He probably so... fucking hates Facebook, but he yeah. still found a way into it via a, um egotistical, uh, privileged guy who can rant at people. That's yeah. his, like, angle. That's his thing. Um. So anyway, uh, it turns out that he has done a rewrite on the upcoming Black Panther film, which is coming out in 2018. Um, and we have acquired a sneak uh, look at part of this movie. He has taken it in a little bit of a different direction um, to the original one. You know, it's less action-packed. Yeah. And it's more about how the standard of political debate in the African nation of Wakanda has soured and become you know petty and it's not like awful not like in the past not at all uh and there's a centerpiece scene at the beginning of the movie that we're going to do a little reading from here let's set the scene yeah interior lecture hall black panther is taking part in a q a session at Zana university the two others on the panel are liberal pundit eric killmonger and conservative pundit Mbaku, the man ape stupid-looking sorority girl, obvious moron, steps up to a microphone to ask a question. Sorority girl. This question is for all three of you. In one sentence or less, can you tell me why Wakanda is the greatest country on Earth? Host. Eric Killmonger? Diversity and opportunity. Man-ape? Freedom and freedom. And the white gorilla cult of Gekri the ape god. What about you, Black Panther? Would you mind giving a liberal platitude or conservative platitude? Black Panther, my answer is the Berninzana Jets, my favourite sports team. I'm going to press you on this one, Black Panther. I need a human moment from you. Wakanda is not the greatest country on Earth. That's my answer. <gasps> Everyone gasps in shock. The plain speaking, the punching of the comfortable lies we tell ourselves, no one has ever seen anything like it. There is no evidence to support the assertion that Wakanda is the greatest country on Earth. Sure, we're number one in literacy, number one in vibranium production, number one in technology, number one in life expectancy, and we have a cure for cancer. But, radiation emanating from the vibranium mound keeps turning people into demon spirits. Does that sound like the greatest country in the world to you? Everyone has started filming on smartphones. This is gonna go viral! The speech is the most epic thing to have ever happened, much better than the explosions you normally get in these stupid films. Sure, we used to be. Back when we had better television anchors. The cowboy movies were good. Young people weren't so fucking ignorant and entitled. And we acted like men. Men who were revered. Great men. The best gender to act like. He turns the host. Is that a human enough moment for you? The Panther's done here. And that's it. Wow. That's the end. Powerful. Absolutely powerful stuff. 
and uh, I think it's a bro- it's a bold it's a bold new direction that he's uh, that he's going to take them in. I look forward to it. Yeah, I think we've seen enough punching, and what we really want to see is like, you know, punching instead of with fists with facts. Fact punching. It's going to be sick. Can't wait. Can't, Can't wait. Can't wait. Coming out in 2018, directed by a very unhappy Ryan Coogler, <laughs> who couldn't fire Aaron Sorkin. Um, all right. That's, that's it. That's it. That's the end of uh, Film Chat for this week. So what are we going to be? I'm going to be reviewing Neruda, the new Pablo Lorraine movie. I don't know what you'll be reviewing. I don't care, quite frankly. <laughs> I'll find some some film out there you'll to watch. You'll find something to I'll watch. I'll find something. I'll watch that documentary about the Fabergé egg that we got sent a... Um, a screener link for and i'll talk about that for a very long time it's whatever, it's what everyone wants to hear about if if, if your review is a fabergé egg it's just an indication that sam had a busy week <laughs> <laughs> and i couldn't make it to the cinema yeah and i ended up like getting up at five in the morning to watch a documentary about fabergé egg just so i had something to talk about <laughs> yeah. oh well All see right. you then see you then guys bye bye Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.